0: Welcome to Cornerstone, where we are seeing lives change through the truth of God's Word and the love of God's people. We're glad you've joined us. Today, we'll be hearing from our lead pastor, Daniel Ostendorf. Listen in and be encouraged as we spend some time in God's Word together. Today, our hearts are heavy. Um, with loss, and I found myself in tears a few minutes ago. Um, So we'll see if we can get through the sermon. Um, We live in a world that isn't as it was supposed to be. We live in a world that because of sin is broken. We live in a world that all sorts of things happen, and when we cry out, there's a brokenness, and we know it's there. It's why the gospel is good, but it doesn't take the brokenness away. There's a, a, a passage in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians that has meant so much to me over the last few years: Thessalonians 4:13 through14. "We don't want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep." It's hard to worship when our hearts are broken. Uh, It always was for Lauren and I, and it still is some days. Because we worship a God who we know is in control, and yet we weep and we grieve things that shouldn't have happened. And what I love about this passage is that Paul says, Grieve. Grieving is part of our story. Grieving is part of our life. But we grieve as those who have hope. We grieve the impact of sin, but but we hope in the good news of the gospel that things will be made right. We know that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead will one day raise us to new life. As a dad who's lost my son, there's a phrase in here that I've held closely to. It's in verse 13 again in 14. About those who are asleep or those who have fallen asleep. There's great encouragement there. That for those who are in Christ, death here is a falling asleep. It's not the end of the story. That they will be raised to life again and we with them and we get to hold them But man, we long and ache for them now. So there's great hope for me in many ways in this passage that we can grieve, but we have hope, and that hope involves the new life of those we say goodbye to. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what God has done in our lives is the foundation of our hope. That God who raised Jesus to new life will one day raise us to new life. And so as we open 1 Peter today, there's something similar going on in this letter. Peter is helping us anchor our lives in these truths, this truth that we have been saved, born again by God, and there's an inheritance to which we will one day awake and we will enjoy for eternity, but in the in-between, there is a very difficult, hard season. Hard because of how others treat us for following Christ. Hard because of the brokenness of this world and things that don't make sense. Things that weren't supposed to be this way until sin entered the world and broke things. And we know as we fix our eyes fully on our Savior that one day we will meet the author and perfecter of our faith face to face. And that's what Peter's wanting to do for us here. He's wanting to root us in that truth so as we walk through the hard, difficult things of life, We don't lose sight of that which God has done saving us. We don't lose sight of that which is to come, the hope we hold on to, that we might live faithfully in this life, that we might worship in the midst of difficulty and challenge. It's no easy thing. And Peter doesn't take it lightly as we'll see today. So as we get ready to dive in, will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for how real it is that we do grieve and we rightfully grieve but I thank you for the, the, the hope that's there too. That Father, because you raised your son to new life and through him have given us life, that we too will be raised for eternity with you. And we look forward to that, even as the pain of life now is hard. And so Lord, we just ask that as, as Peter prayed for those who would receive this letter and hope that his letter might be an encouragement to them to stay the course to run the race faithfully, to live in light of the good news of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would help us to live though it's difficult for you and in light of that truth. Father, be with us as we open our word. May your spirit root those truths deeper and deeper in our hearts that we might live boldly for you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Technology works first service, decides not to work second service. Go figure. All right. George Herman Ruth, better known as Babe Ruth, played Major League Baseball from 1914 to 1935. He's considered one of the greatest players of all time and certainly one of the greatest hitters of all time. He started off with the Boston Red Sox and then he went on to play for the Yankees. When he started playing with the Yankees, the the Yankees shared a polo field with the Giants. But eventually, both those teams began to grow, and and the Giants kicked the Yankees out. So the Yankees were forced to find a new home. So they bought a plot of land across the Harlem River, and in 1922, began building what became known as Yankee Stadium. It's unique for several different reasons. Yankee Stadium, both one, took less than a year to build. Two, it's the first time the word stadium was used to describe a ballpark. And three, that three-tier seating system that maybe you hate if you're the nosebleeds, but it would be much worse if the tiers weren't there, started here. When the ballpark opened on opening day, it pitted the Yankees versus, you guessed it, the Boston Red Sox. The, the record-setting crowd that day was almost double what they'd ever seen at a baseball game in our country before that. The the record at that time was 42,000 people at one game. Opening day at Yankee Stadium saw 72.4 thousand people in attendance, and over 25,000 sent back home because there just wasn't room for them. The crowd was electric. It was excited. And Babe Ruth, who used to play for the Boston Red Sox, steps up to the plate. Now, he steps up to the plate early in in one of the early innings to bases loaded— And he takes a swing at bat and he hits the first ever home run in Yankee Stadium. He and his teammates run the bases and they gain those four points. The game will end up being won. Yankees beating out the Red Sox four to one because of that home run. And to this day, Yankee Stadium is known as the house that Ruth built. In fact, Babe Ruth's wife will tell you that this game, this this home run is the only one he really cared about. It's the one he couldn't stop talking about. Maybe you wives can appreciate husbands just talking about the same thing over and over again, right? But for Babe Ruth, this was the defining moment of his career, and arguably many who love baseball would say it was a defining moment in the history of baseball. Well, today we're going to look at a different type of house. This one isn't built by human hands. It wasn't made famous by an actor or an athlete or a, a star of any kind. No, this is a different house that's not built with chopped down wood or rock. It's a house built with this odd phrase living stones, somehow built upon a living stone. And the things that happen in this this house built of living stones are things that have never happened in this way quite before. In today's passage, Peter's going to show us the house that God has built. Before we jump in, let's do a quick review to kind of remind ourselves of where we've come from. We're in a section in this letter where Peter is laying down what it means to live in this in-between space, between the truth of what God has done in our lives, being born again, and this inheritance we're headed to. How do these two fixed realities change this reality of how we live faithfully? You might remember Peter is writing to Christians who have come to follow Christ. They've been rejected by their communities. They've lost their homes potentially, their jobs. Maybe, eventually, many of them will be martyred. We know that under the great persecution of Diocletian, that thousands will be killed for their faith. So he's writing to people who who know that and have experienced the truth that that by living for Christ here in the in-between, and not just living for eternity, they will lose things. They will be rejected. They will be flogged, they will be kicked out of synagogues, they will be mocked, those sorts of things. You see, Christ followers don't worship the same as their non-believing neighbors, and they don't see the world the same way that they do. And so, finding themselves increasingly strangers in a a foreign land, maybe even the land they grew up in, they're asking this question, what do we do? And, And what I love about Peter's letter is Peter is not saying, all right, you found it difficult to live here, here's your solution. Run away and build a new community. Run away to the hills. Build a commune. No, Peter's saying, here's how you stand your ground. Here's how you stay living as God's ambassadors in the midst of a foreign land and living faithfully for him. You might remember Peter is writing this letter probably about 62 AD under Emperor Nero. He's about to be killed for his own faith. If he's not already in prison writing this letter, he's very close to that being the case for him. He knows what he speaks of. Well, last week, we saw Peter talking about this love for others, that, that there's a good love, right? This, this sincere love is one that's obedient to God's call to love your neighbor. That's where we start. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing, that, that we would love others because God's asked us to. But, but Peter says there is something you can go even beyond that. There is an earnest love from a heart that's been changed by God, this heart that has been purified, this agape love that, that lays down your life, that sacrifices, that perseveres. That's the love that we can show the world in showing them Christ, because it's the love that we've experienced from God. And and Peter says, if you want to love like that, you've got to do a couple of things. You can't keep wearing your old clothes. You might remember this, right? You have to put away or throw off malice and envy and slander and deceit. Those things are counter to loving others the way God loves you. And in place of these clothes you've thrown off, he calls us to crave for the milk of God's word. And he uses this beautiful phrase that if you've ever seen a a kid, a baby crying, and they're inconsolable until that milk hits their lips, that's what Peter says. Be like that. Crave God's word so much that until you open it, you're restless and you can't wait to get in it. And then you open it and your heart settles because you're with God and his word. And you might remember at the end of the last passage that as we hunger for God's word and we're in it, God uses his word to grow us up into this new life that he's given us. And so today, we pick up there. We pick up in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4. And, and Peter wants to continue to build on this, that, that you have been rejected, but God has given you a new way of loving. That, that you had this way of living, and you're putting it be, behind you. And now, today, he's going to focus on this question. You've been rejected. You, you've lost your community, your family, your identity, your purpose, Perhaps. But guess what? In Christ, you have all those things. So let's take a look at 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, as we turn to this week's passage, Peter's transitioning from his metaphors of a newborn baby and other things, now into spiritual houses. The the Greek here is actually the word temple. Uh, The word, the idea of temples back in this time. And in in order to better understand what Peter's doing here, let's just do a quick history lesson. You know, I'm a history professor by training. Uh, So let's do a quick history lesson. What would people have thought about when they heard this word temple or spiritual houses? Well, if you were a Gentile, a non-Drew, you would think about this. The temples that scattered around your city and the countryside that were built To to honor the gods, to worship the gods, there were many of them. They were built out of marble and stone, and they were found everywhere. They were prolific throughout the ancient Near East. These spiritual houses or temples were certainly not alive, and they weren't built by the gods. They were built by people for the gods. So this would have been weird language to a non-Jew. This isn't how temples work. They're not made of living stones, and, and they're not built by God. We build them. Well, if you came from a Jewish background, you might think of this. You might think about the house of God. It's in a specific location, the temple in Jerusalem. And though it's built with incredibly impressive stones, these stones too weren't living. And the people of God, a Jew might say, well, those are us. We're God's chosen people. And so Peter here is ruffling feathers a little bit. He's he's kind of shaking their ground. Do you get what I'm saying? Because what I'm telling you is unlike anything you've seen. Peter is building on ideas of the Old Testament for sure. In the Old Testament, God had his people construct a tent. They called it the tabernacle. And that is where uh, the Lord's presence dwelled. He met Moses face to face. It's where sacrifices were made. It was a physical thing they carried with them. And then you fast forward and you get the temple of Solomon. and, And here again, a place in Jerusalem where you would offer sacrifices, where you would come to worship. But what's interesting is when Solomon builds his temple... He notes something, and it's almost a prophetic word that he recognized the limits of this great building he had built. He says this in 1 Kings uh, 8. Will God dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him. How much less this house that I have built? So there's always this question mark of of the tabernacle and the tent and the and the temple. These were these were imperfect representations of God's house. There was always restless. And, and when you get to this temple, I mean, this is Herod's temple. And, and Herod built this temple, and it's multitudes bigger than Solomon's. It's gorgeous. It's ornate. It's really a PR campaign for the, the Jews to like me is what this is. Uh, a squandering uh, of public funds, maybe, squandering, maybe. Um, but anyways, that's what's going on here. And so when people hear this language from Peter that you're being built into a temple of living stones, these are their contexts. This is what they're, they're wrestling through and trying to figure out what does that mean. And Peter's saying that that this house that God is building is nothing like the house you've ever built with your hands. I'm doing a a new thing, as it were. So Peter is saying here in verse 4, as you come to Christ, God is going to build you into a temple, into a house where he is worshipped, where people meet with him. And it's not a tent, it's a physical tent, it's a, a community of people. And so church, rightfully, as we join together today, The church is not this building, though I'm thankful for the building and will increasingly be so in Houston's heat, right? We're thankful for this, but the building is not the church. And our brothers and sisters around the world who are meeting in basements and in secret rooms and fields know that. Maybe in a way we don't, that we've never experienced. And that's what Peter's saying. There's a new house that's built around a community of believers, not around stones and brick. In order to help us understand how this changes the way we worship, Peter unpacks three key ideas in this text. So let's take a look at them. God builds with stones men have rejected. It's a really important piece, especially to his readers. God builds with living stones. And God doesn't force stones to be a part of his house. So let's walk through these together. God is building with stones men have rejected. One of the themes of this letter, as I mentioned earlier, is the idea of rejection. That, that we know the context of this letter where, where Christians who are increasingly find themselves ostracized, pushed out of, kind of put to the periphery, periphery, or worse, actually killed for their faith. And so we see similar language in this passage. You might notice in verse 4 the, the language of rejection and being chosen. You might recognize in verse 6 the, the language of shame. In verse 7 again, rejection and again in 9, being chosen. Peter hits home that before I talk about you, my readers, let me remind you of your Savior. That that men rejected your Savior, Jesus, but Jesus, as God's Son, was God's chosen, honored instrument for your redemption. He was precious in God's sight. All right, some cultural background here that might help us understand what's going on. Uh, What's the big deal about all this honor and shame in this passage? Well, one of the unique characteristics of the culture that Peter's writing to and, and that you'll still find in the Middle East and Asia today, talk to Mike Stewart who lived in the Middle East for a while, is the idea of an honor-shame culture. In an individualistic culture here in the West, we don't quite get our heads around this, but in honor-shame culture, it's community-driven. One's actions are not simply individual decisions. Your choices bring honor or shame to your family. In a previous generation, we, we had this in the U.S. I mean, you might remember your grandparent telling, like, slapping you upside the head at church because what you were doing brought shame to the family, right? We, we knew this. We've lost a lot of it. But it's the reason why today, when a Muslim becomes a follower of Christ, it is seen as bringing real shame on the family. You must have done something wrong as a family that someone would walk away from Muhammad, that someone would walk away from the community of their faith. And so what do we get? we get a a calling on the family members to an honor killing. You kill this one who's brought shame on the family to restore honor to the family. These things are are very real still in our world today. And they might strike us, okay, well, that's that. But, you know, we see this in Scripture. Think about Luke 4. In Luke 4, Jesus travels to Nazareth, and and he comes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads it, and he tells those gathered what? Today, these words have been fulfilled in your presence. And everybody there knows exactly what he's saying. He's saying, I am the promised Messiah. I am the Son of God. What does that immediately mean? It means he's blaspheming. He is immediately claiming to be the Son of God, which no one should do, because God is above all and is not us. And what is Nazareth, his hometown, the people he grew up with, the people who knew his family, what do they do? They chase him out of town and try to throw him off a cliff and kill him. So we see the idea of honor and shame and the importance of honor and shame in Scripture. And so let's not miss that cultural context of this letter. Peter is writing to people who have been kicked out of their communities, that they have been told, you've brought nothing but shame on your family, nothing but shame on on the temple and and on our community. And that's who he's writing to. And so he makes a big deal that not only were you rejected believers, but Jesus was rejected. And just as God chose Jesus to be honored, God has chosen you. God has not just said, hey, I like you. God has chosen you to build his house. The most noble, the most, um, the, the most, uh, my brain just totally lost the word, uh, but the most significant thing where God's people worship God, where they come to offer sacrifices to God, are not a building. It's you, the people who have been rejected by your world. What an incredible honor. That's us, church. God wants to others to worship through you. God wants us to be a community that points people to him. He's building us in the temple of his people. Well, while we don't live in an honor-shame culture, I do want to bring this home in one more story. This week, I had the joy of meeting with some dear brothers and sisters in Christ, and they came to know Jesus as Savior in their 40s. And when they did, there was a very real rejection for them. The, The faith community they had been a part of pushed them out. Even though they had spent decades together, living together, and raising kids together, pushed them out, and their families didn't know what to do with them. And maybe some of you in this room have experienced that. That you made the decision to follow Christ, and your family, maybe at best case, doesn't know what to do with you. At worst case, doesn't want anything to do with you. So let's not miss the point that this still happens in our world today. Well, to his original audiences, to these dear brothers and sisters, Peter is saying this. Though others reject you for following Christ, the God of the universe has chosen you. He's made you alive with his son and through his son, and he's building his house with you. We could stop there. Like, that's really, really good news. But it gets better. And what we don't want to miss is that Peter's not making this up. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes something very similar. Here we go. So then you were no longer strangers and aliens, exactly what Peter's readers felt like, but you were fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. You see, we are built on the true cornerstone, Christ. He's the one that gave us life, and he's the one that gives us life. And we are made living stones through him, joined together, not a physical building, but a community of Christ followers. So God builds with stones men have rejected. We can take great encouragement from that. Next, Peter says, God builds with living stones. And this is the weird kind of paradox of this passage. What does he mean by this? Well, hopefully you've already picked up that a theme of Peter's letter is life. Living this life. And we've seen it in uh, the living hope in our memory passage. We've seen it in the living word of God at the end of chapter one. And now we see it in living stone. And to borrow from Jesus' words in John 10, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Peter's wanting to hit home over and over and over again. There is no life for us apart from Christ, and in Christ we are made alive. So God is building with these stones to begin in life, these stones that were dead. And indeed, earlier in Ephesians, Paul says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, that's you, that's me, that's all of us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God has made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. You see, church, if God tried to build us, if, we, if He tried to build a temple with us before we came to Christ, a new life in Him, He would be building a temple with dead stones. It would be a temple like every other temple in the world, where it's dead, the sacrifices don't mean anything, and at the end of the day, there's nothing of value there. But instead, He's made us alive in Christ, He's given us life, and because we are living stones, there is value now to our worship as we, wa- as we worship the one who has made us alive. You might notice a- an interesting phrase that's jumped up both in this passage in Peter and in Ephesians, that we are being joined together. I want to speak here to a cultural moment in our day. I don't know about you, but I've had lots of friends say, oh, I don't really need to go to church. Like, Jesus has saved me. I'm okay by myself. Like, I'll just worship at home. Like, me and my pillow, were are good friends, Right? But the important thing here is in 1 Peter 2, 5, this you yourselves, the you is a southern y'all. This is you all. This is second person plural. This is a group receiving this letter. You don't get to be built up as a single brick. Anybody here want to live in a house with a single brick? Like that just doesn't work. And yet how many times do we as Christians think that we can worship God, that we can follow God as a single brick? You don't build a house a, a temple out of living stones, out of a single stone. No, we are built up together into a brick wall, a wall that, that becomes this temple of God, and, and God in his good design knew we needed each other. That's why it's so important to not forsake the fellowship of believers in coming together. All right. So God is building this temple of living stones built on a living foundation, our resurrected Savior and Lord, and we are his people who were dead in our sins and were now made alive through Christ because of God's love for us. God is building his house with living stones. Third one, God doesn't force stones into his house. As Peter continues, there's a tension here. We've seen this tension already in the letter. Some of you who love theology already know what this tension is between God's sovereignty and man's free will. How do those two work together? I don't pretend to try to solve it this morning for you because we've been arguing about that for years, but I think we hold them in tension. Let me show this this tension to you. In our first week, we saw Peter encourage his readers that they were God's elect, God's chosen people. We see that again here, that they are God's chosen race, his called out ones in verses 8 and 9. It's clear from Peter's letter that God is at work. And as we just saw in Ephesians, we were dead in our trespasses and sins until God gave us new life. It's clear that God's involved. We have absolutely no power to make ourselves alive. Dead stones cannot make themselves living stones. That doesn't work. A dead body can't open its own eyes to understand what's going on around it. It must have its eyes opened. And that's where this beautiful phrase, called out of darkness, We don't walk our way out of darkness. We don't stumble our way out of darkness. We don't find our way out of darkness. We are called by a God who loves us out of darkness. The truth is, church, under our own power, we don't choose God. We don't figure this whole thing about God and Christ out on our own. God must first work in us to open our eyes to him. But oftentimes we get stuck there, and we don't talk about the other side of this tension. There are these two things that are pulling on each other that are true. Because the other part of this is that there is clearly a choice for us in this passage. Note the words that Peter uses. In verse 4, as you come to him. Verse 6, whoever believes in him. Verse 7, rejecting the stone is a choice. In verse 8, choose to disobey the word. And just real quickly, the word here this is a really important point. The word here probably most likely points back to the end of chapter 1, where we're told the word is the good news of the gospel. And so what Peter is not saying is, hey, you've been saved by Christ. Now you're struggling to obey, and, and that and your disobedience is something's broken. Remember, this is the truth that we've been holding on to. No, 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 you have been born again, and no disobedience changes that. What he's saying, the Greek here indicates that this, obedi- this disobedience is that stuck in the mud, dig your heels in, willful rebellion of a three-year-old who just doesn't want to obey their parents, Right? That's us when we refuse to accept the good news of the gospel. And that's what Peter's saying here. That the people here who disobey as they were destined to are the people who have dug their heels in. And no matter how much God does in their life, no matter how much he opens their eyes and knocks on their, their hearts, they're not choosing him. They choose to reject Christ as their savior. And so it's clear from this passage that, that God has to work, but we also have a choice to believe or to reject to obey God's call or to disobey it. And it's here in the midst of this passage that we see the idea of shame and honor highlighted in a beautiful way. Because here's a community of believers who have come to believe in Christ and their culture has ostracized them, rejected them, right? Said you were foolish. How could you do this? How could you give up your way of life? How could you do this to your mom and your dad and your family? And what Peter is saying here is that's the way the world sees what you did? But the way that God sees what you did is the exact opposite. God has given you his wisdom, and what looks foolish is actually wisdom. We see this in in 1 Corinthians. Let's take a look at this 1 Corinthians 1. But God chose what is foolish in the world. So the world says, This is a foolish decision to follow Christ. God chose that decision to shame the wise. And so what Peter's doing here is there's actually the switch. The, The world has told you, You have brought shame. But Peter's saying they actually have brought shame on themselves, for they've refused the gospel. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And here's a beautiful phrase in verse 31. So that, as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. To kind of wrap up this beautiful tension between what God does and what we do, God works, and we don't choose him apart from him, so that no man can boast. There is not a person in this room who can say, man, I figured this stuff out. I figured out Jesus. I got this all figured out. No, none of us get to boast. It was God who opened our eyes and helped us see. So Peter is saying, as the world rejects you, boast in Jesus Christ and what God has done for you. I need to stop here because if you weren't with us a month ago, this word cornerstone might feel a little bit strange to you. And it's an important one not only for our church because we're named after this phrase, which is kind of a big deal, um, but it's going to continue to be a big deal in Peter's letters. So you might remember a month ago, Peter's meeting before the Sanhedrin. Uh, they are, are putting him on trial for proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ probably less than a year after Christ's death. And let's go ahead and look at Acts 4. Here's what Jesus, uh, what Peter says he tells these people who had orchestrated Jesus' death, he says, let it be known that this man was healed in the name of Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, that by him this man is standing before you well. And then later then goes on to say, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the cornerstone. The cornerstone in the ancient Near East it is this first stone that you would set, a build, set at the beginning of a building project. It is the stone that anchors it in good soil and rock. It is the stone that gives direction to the whole building. It is stone that, a stone that gives stability to the whole building. And what I love about this comparison, Peter uses it here in Acts 4, less than a year after Jesus died. And here in First Peter, 25 years later, Peter is returning the same imagery. He's saying, this is such an important point. I've been proclaiming it for the last 20, 25 years. That if you don't start with the right foundation stone, if you don't start with the right cornerstone, everything else gets off. If you're not oriented, if you're not founded on the cornerstone that is Christ, everything else falls apart. And that's where we get this language of stumbling and the stone of stumbling. That if you reject Christ, you're going to stumble through life, even if you think you have it figured out. Well, because Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, when we we trust Jesus as our Savior, it anchors us. It anchors all of life. It helps us move through and understand life and and build straight paths from there. Without him, everything topples. And so what Peter is doing in this section as he talks about giving people a choice to choose to be the living stones. Peter is saying, you've chosen the better thing. You've been rejected by your world, but you've chosen the better thing because God chose you. In John 14... Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Church, the truth is that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one that our life should be founded on. He's the one that gives us life. He's the one that makes sense of life. And I know that many of you in this room know Jesus in that way. That he has made sense of a life that you were trying to figure out, that you were trying to put together. And I love and I celebrate that you are living stones. But some of you in this room maybe aren't. Maybe you're trying different stones in that spot. Maybe you think you can figure it out. And you're like, I'm a pretty good cornerstone. I can figure this out. Like, God's giving me what I need. Maybe that cornerstone, that thing that orients all of your life, that all of your life is founded on, is the career you're chasing or, or the finances you're chasing or your family. None of those things are solid foundations. The only solid foundation is the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ, the one who gives us life. And to wrap up this point, God will never force us to build our lives upon that stone. He will always give us a choice. As Joe Painter loves to say, it's become one of my favorite phrases, God is a gentleman, and a gentleman will never force us to do what's best for us. So God knows that we need him, but he will never force us to be his stones. So Peter has has shown us a little bit of what it means to be this house of God. That God builds with stones men have rejected. That includes you, dear brother and sister. God builds with stones that he has made alive. And God does not force any of us to choose to follow him. God is building his house, his temple, his dwelling place with stones that men have rejected, made alive by a message that men have rejected, a message that he will never force us to choose. Now, for those of us who have choo- chosen Jesus, there's good news. And this is where we're going to wrap up for this passage. There's exciting news. So as if these people who felt like they'd been rejected and had no value don't have enough value now as God's chosen people to build that he's building his house with, Peter goes farther. He says, wait, there's so much more. And here's what he unpacks. He says, God's house is his people, and those people have a new identity and a new purpose. You'll notice here in verse 8 that Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What incredible identity, what incredible purpose, what incredible community for a people who've lost all those things as they followed Christ. So let's unpack what these mean just so we understand a little bit better. What does it mean to be a chosen race? Well, it utilizes the language of the Old Testament. Israel was chosen out of all the peoples of the earth, not because God didn't love all the other people, because he was going to use this chosen people to proclaim his love for all people. God had chosen Israel, and now Peter is saying, all of you, Jew, Gentile, receiving this letter, you are God's chosen people to proclaim the love of God and the news of God. The Greek word here behind, between, behind race is genos. It really speaks to family or people, to, to, to our genealogy. And so it's really hard for us as as Americans and Westerners who have been impacted by 19th century Darwinism to see the word race and not immediately go to skin color. That's just how we're kind of wired by our culture. I think it's a work of the devil over the last 200 years. Because what Jesus is saying is, you are my chosen family. You are my chosen people from all nations and all tribes and all tongues. You look different. You speak different. And you I brought together as my chosen race. He says you're a royal priesthood. This idea previously raised in, in verse 5 hits home the new purpose that we all have. To not only worship God, to, but to bring others to worship God. That our conversations with one another would stir in each other so much a love for God and his word that they would want to worship him as well. The priesthood of believers is an incredible gift we've been given. So we have purpose, and the most significant purpose of all. Third, uh, we've made, made a holy nation You may remember from several weeks ago, we talked about this idea. Peter says, be holy as God is holy. We are a group that's set apart. We are set apart or holy people. And that's exactly how we should be. And and when we find the people of God wanting to look like the nations around them, that's exactly when the people of God got in trouble in the Old Testament. And that's exactly when the people of God get in trouble today. When we don't want to be a set apart nation, a set apart people faithfully following him, that's when we get in trouble. And then third, this beautiful phrase. You are a people for God's own possession. All of these titles were titles used of the Israelites, of the Jews. And now Peter's saying, these are true of all of you. Every single person in this room, we are chosen, we are royal, we are holy, and we are God's own possession. God says, you are mine. That's an amazing thing. Tim Keller, the influential pastor and author of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, passed away this week at the age of 72. And in a talk he gave four years ago, kind of hitting home, what does it mean to to walk in the truth of the gospel, says this. He says, your identity is received, not achieved. And that's exactly what Peter's saying to people here. Your identity as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a, a living stone is something you've received because you've trusted in Christ. And that's the good news for us And that good news is exactly where this wraps up. Paul says you've been called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. And then he goes on in verse 10 to proclaim what some of these excellencies were. He says you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, together we join together in a group of people who would never be together were it not for the work and love of Jesus Christ. And we worship together and and across the world there are billions of Christians worshiping and we're a group of people who would never come together. We would never call ourselves a, a nation or one people or a chosen people were it not for the work of Christ. In fact, everything in this world will pit us against each other. And God says, no, I've made you one race, one people, and you are mine. We are God's people because what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, he has caused us to be born again to new life that only gives us hope for what's to come, eternity that we hold on to, but helps us live and walk in a new identity and a new purpose here and now. So my last kind of thought and application for us today is church, where are we spending our energy? I think far too often we, we spend a lot of time and energy trying to fit in in this world. How do I look like the, the guy at work that's getting, being, being really successful in his job how do I look like the family next to me? How do I, how do, I do the things that everyone around me is doing? Because isn't that what I'm supposed to do as a good parent? Aren't I supposed to have my kids in all the same sporting events? Aren't I supposed to do all these different things? And, and Peter's saying, no, you were called out to be a separate nation, a different people. Church, let's spend our energy and our time living into that calling rather than trying to fit into this world. A world that will reject us if we stand for Christ, but a God who has brought us in and said, this is who you are. You have the most noble of purposes as my people. And as we do that, may we stand on Jesus Christ, the solid rock on whom our faith is built. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, as we join together in this physical building, it's an incredible thing to think of your great love for us, that you loved us so much that you're building us up into a living house a house that that our purpose and our calling is to proclaim you and to worship you and to bring others along and to tell others about you. Lord, may we, in the face of rejection and opposition and discouragement and heartache in this life, may we stand in the truth that we are yours, that you've called us your own possession, that you've given us a new family to belong to, a new people and a new purpose. Lord, may we be a a people who spend our, our energy and our days and our times trying to fit into that community that you've put us in, trying to grow up into this amazing identity you've given us in Christ. And may we not squander our lives trying to fit into the world around us. May we live for you, Father, as we stand on the rock of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us today. For further information about today's podcast or our church in general, please visit us at cornerstonecbc.org. That's cornerstonecbc.org. Thanks. See you next time.